Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. I'm going to keep this very tight because I am having a little break from doing podcasts at the moment because I've had some shit going down in my personal life that I will talk about at some stage in the future, but unfortunately is still a bit raw uh, for us all. Thank you to Podcast Mike, who does an incredible job getting these episodes out. I was back a few weeks ago doing the intro and I said that, you know, thanks to Podcast Mike for filling in Well. I got one episode back and then some other shit went down and Podcast Mike had to fill in again. So if you love Podcast Mike and you love the work that he does for this podcast, getting it out regularly, go to patreon.com slash philosophy and you can sign up there to be a patron of this podcast. Uh, You get the episodes a day early, you get them ad free and Podcast Mike gets paid as does James Fosdyke who does all the incredible and original artwork for these episodes. Uh, speaking of podcasts, I have a whole range of other ones, uh, Tofop, Fofop, and Two Guys, One Cup. I am having a little break from all of them at the moment to deal with my personal circumstances, but if you go to Tofop.com, you can find best of episodes, well, not best of, we call them compilation episodes of Tofop because there's no real best of or worst of, of Tofop, it's just a ridiculous conversation I have with my friend Charlie Clawson, and you can hear some themed episodes up there in the feed at the moment, and Fofop is the spin-off where either Charlie or I talk to other people at the moment we normally swap week to week but uh, charlie is covering all that for me at the moment and speaking of charlie he is also doing a summer series of our football podcast two guys one cup with scott dooley who i'm sure people might remember from triple j and nova and all but a bunch of other things they're doing a show called footy fixes which is in the two guys one cup feed if that sounds interesting to you make sure you go and check that out as well uh if you like this show what I was going to do up until Christmas was uh, I have a, rain, a, a, a whole bunch of banked episodes uh, from earlier in the year. This week, uh, there was an Eddie Perfect episode that went up, I think we recorded in April. So it's like time travel that way. And you can go back and listen to what we thought the world was about in April and see what we got right and see what we got wrong. And I have a whole bunch of other banked episodes as well. What I was going to do was record some brand new episodes to put in between the banked episodes and also to make sure that you know you were hearing as many female voices as you were hearing male voices and those things that are very important to me but unfortunately because of this shit that has gone down i am recording no new episodes for the rest of the year so what we are going to do up until new year is that we are going to release often two per week of the bank episodes uh, that will take you up to, to Christmas, to New Year's. Then I am going to have a break in January from doing the podcast altogether. And then uh, we will be back end of January, early February with some brand new episodes next year. Uh, but in the meantime, if you like this show, there is going to be so much of it to come uh, before Christmas. And I promise you that in the new year, in next year, that... Um, we will get back to sort of having a regular range of diverse voices on the podcast. When I say diverse voices, I mean, you know, like men and women and non-binary people and people of colour, not fuckwits. Like I'm suddenly not going to go into 2022 and suddenly invite Andrew Bolt or Joe Hildebrand on the podcast. This is a fuckwit free zone. Occasionally a fuckwit slips through, but in a general sense, if we already know they're a fuckwit when they arrive at the door, we do not let them into the philosophy world. So next year, I promise you um, that we will get back to being on top of the show and um, it's just, yeah, it's been a hard year. I know it's been a hard year for a lot of people out there as well. It has certainly been a hard year for for me and getting these shows out and I could not have done it without the invaluable help of Podcast Mike. So If you like the show, the best thing you can do is go to patreon.com slash philosophy 
join up there. Uh, I'm also going to put some new content up there at some stage next year. Again, I'm taking some time off in January to think about what I want this show to be, um, how I want it to continue, um, what way I could make it continue that fits the rest of my life, um, all those sort of things. So I am going to take the next couple of months off. A whole bunch of banked episodes will come out in that time, so there'll be plenty for you to listen to. Um, But I'm going to have a break from it all. I'm going to have a break from... uh, all my work and have a little think about what it is that I want to do with my life. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. All right. That's a bit too heavy. I'll explain more, um, you know, in the future, I will, I will try to do the intros for all the banked episodes and put them in context and explain them. So you will be hearing from me a little bit over that period of time as I do these introductions or maybe not. Maybe I will actually realize that I cannot do these introductions and podcast. Mike will take them back over today's episode is with Jimmy Carr. Jimmy Carr probably needs no introduction. He is one of the hugest comedians in the entire world. I was really pleased that Jimmy gave me this time to have a chat about life and all things laughter related. It's very funny. That's what I will say about this episode. Jimmy's a guy who can't resist telling jokes. And there was a couple of times that I probably would have loved to really explore a serious conversation about cancer culture or something else. And, you know, Jimmy goes for the joke and moves on, and that's absolutely Jimmy Carr. He's just a and hilarious person. Sorry, I've had a practice of doing these intros, and I was never that good at them in the first place. Jimmy has a new book, which I think gets a mention in the interview, so you you will hear about that. Um, I thank him very much for being on the show. I thank you very much for listening to the show. If you like it, um, the best thing you can do is rate, review it, uh, leave a message, um, you know, on any of those spaces. And of course, if you want to message me about any ideas that you have for the podcast, guests or anything else, the best place to do that is patreon.com slash philosophy. Go there, join for as little as a dollar a month and uh, you can message me on there. All right. I hope that you're all doing okay. Um, life can be fucking hard sometimes and I hope that your life is not too fucking hard right now and that you are getting by. Um, enjoy this episode with Jimmy. I mean, I mean, I can't believe your luck. <laughs> this, is, this really feels like it could be the breakthrough for you. It feels like, I mean, this this could be huge. I mean, you know that. And I appreciate, you know, you're taking the time out of your busy schedule. I know. I'm t- taking the time to shill my book on your podcast. Yeah, sure. Sure. I mean, I imagine that you're doing a lot of shilling though, Jimmy. Like I imagine that there is like a long line of people that you're shilling to. So I appreciate that you added me to your shilling line. I only just got the title of the podcast yesterday. Uh, <laughs> I was I was like reading a philosophy. Oh, it's a bit, and then I went, oh, philosophy, Phil, Will, ah! <laughs> Genuinely made me giggle, but like a year after I'd first seen it. Well, if you're um, happy to start, I am also happy to start. Great, let's go. Well, sorry, I, this wasn't it. Oh. <laughs> I really, I feel like I've left my best work in the gym. Oh, mate, I'm leaving all that in. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that there is official start to the podcast that I do have to do at some point or people won't know that it started. So this is me starting the podcast now. Uh, hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. This is how the show starts. I ask my guest who they are. So who are you? Oh, well, I mean, it's a very personal question, Will. Very personal question. <laughs> 
Uh, that people call me Jimmy Carr. I'm a stand-up comedian, but I'm so much more than that. And I'm, I, I'm so glad, I don't want to get stuck on the first question, but it feels like it's a lot to unpack. And I, I've just written an autobiography. So this is, I mean, this is crazy because actually this is a perfect question. Yeah. The, the coincidence, I know. Yeah, if you've got like, <laughs> if you've got three hours to kill, you could, uh, you could maybe, uh, you could listen to the audiobook on double time. <laughs> Come back and then we'll talk about who I am. Autobiographically, people can read your new book, which is called? It's called Before and Laughter. It's not what I wanted to call it, Will. It's not my first choice. Okay, so what was your first choice? First choice was um, just the tip, come inside Jimmy Carr. <laughs> but then I realised I'm not, I've, I haven't been in a pornographic film for years, so it seemed an inappropriate title. I did porn, but I did porn years ago when... Um, when I was a kid. Uh, <laughs> and then the other title I did consider, and I think this will fly in Australia, it would have been funny. I sold it on this title. I said, I'm going to write kind of, uh, it's an autobiography, half autobiography and half self-help. It's quite a strange book. So it's half about my life and half about the listener's life and your life and saying, look, these are the things I believe that enabled me to do what I do. And, you know, so it's a bit philosophical. It's great to be on the podcast. I wanted yeah. to call it Jim will fix it. <laughs> but there was some pushback because apparently there's a negative connotation. Who knew? Who knew, Will? Well, you know, in Australia, it might be a bit different because our famous Jim is actually a guy who runs a mowing franchise called Jim's Mowing, which is like the most successful like gardening franchise in Australia. And it's so successful. There's now like Jim's electricity and Jim's swimming pools. And this guy, Jim, he's a bearded Australian fella and his logo is on all of their like trucks. And oh, I don't know if Jim's Mowing actually has a slogan. I don't know if it's, it's, it's certainly not Jim will fix it. Oh, yeah, mate, I'll mow your lawn. <laughs> One of the first Australians I ever met uh -huh. was a guy, and it was and that was my friend Ian's friend. Um, was he was talking about he was mowing the lawn, and it's a real Aussie phrase. And he went, uh, he went, I was, I was uh, and because we noticed the guy was wearing sandals, uh -huh. and he only had he only he didn't he only had one big toe. One of the big toes was missing. <laughs> yeah, and he said, uh, we said, what happened to your to your to your big toe? And he went, I was I was mowing the lawn, and I I. Uh, pulled it back and it went over my foot and it just uh, clean off. And my friend went, did it hurt? And he went, it didn't fucking tickle. <laughs> it was the most Aussie line in the world. I heard about a guy once, this is years ago. I heard about a guy that was mowing the lawn, had the same accident, right? So the guy's, the guy's got one toe and he's got a patch on his left eye. He was mowing the lawn, went over his foot, the, the toe flicked up and took his eye out. I mean, that's, that is bad news. Bad like, that's a, bad you know you're having a bad day. Just a bad day. So maybe that's my philosophy on life. Don't mow the lawn barefoot. I mean, not relatable to an, not relatable to an Australian audience, right? Like, live a little. Get Jim's. Get Jim's mowers in. They'll do it. I imagine Jim's mowers probably just come in their thongs as well. I mean, it's a very Australian franchise. I'm going to backpedal a little past the, you know, you only did porn when you were a kid joke to a question that I'm going to ask you about pornography. So if you, if you were to transport yourself into any famous pornography situation, so if you were going to star in a pornography film, what would be the, the vague, you know, outline? What would be the plot point of the pornographic film that you were starring in? 
It's a question I get asked a lot because, you know, a lot of, lot of uh, I do a lot of radio here, a lot of morning radio to promote stuff. So I get yeah. asked this. It's great that you've asked because actually I know you've, the lockdown has been pretty severe in Australia. Uh-huh. And in the, in the middle of the second lockdown here in the UK, I actually, I mean, I don't look at internet pornography anymore. I don't, I don't look at it. Not a huge moral thing on my part, Will. I just recently finished it. I, wow. um, <laughs> I don't know if you've, but when you complete it, you put your initials yeah. in and the screen just comes up. It just says rehydrate. Right. <laughs> I was watching, there's a, there's a porn film I was watching recently called, um, uh, it was, I think it was Gaping Anuses 4, uh-huh. Planet of the Gapes. And I enjoyed it well, but there were some pretty big holes in the plot. Right. <laughs> I bet there were. Had you seen the previous three, Gaping Anus? Because like some of the holes in the plot might have been. I was lo- for the first 20 minutes, I was lost. I was going, well, who's yeah. this guy? He does- How does he even know her? I always thought that was the thing of like um, the, the, the slightly the very kind of old school thing of going uh, uh, women watch porn films to the end. Like men, men finish, yeah. but women watch porn films to the end. Do you know why, Will? To see why? if they get married. Right. <laughs> These guys are getting on great. She really you, likes it. And she you. likes all these friends. This is terrific. Yeah, but then eventually he's just alone in an office in their house watching the porn films online again. You know, that's where it ends. That's where it actually Akuna Matata, my friend, Akuna Matata. Exactly. The the circle jerk of life, as we said. So What about uh, you? What would what's your porn scenario? Oh, okay. Uh, you know what? I've always enjoyed the idea that I would be a landlord. I am not a landlord, but I feel like there is some new subgenre of pornography which is about like the landlord coming around and there being something wrong with the share house. And then in return, they're like, if you overlook the fact that we've got a cat, maybe I can do something for you in return. I mean, I'm more attracted to that for the idea that I have an investment property than I am for the sexual situation. Well, I find like, pornography slightly lost me recently because mm. I don't know, I don't, but people presumably, grown-ups are listening to this, there'll be some swearing and stuff. But the, if you go on your porn hubs or any of these things now, mm. it seems, where did incest porn come from? It was not a thing five years ago. And suddenly everything's about a stepsister now. And you go, where did this, was this underlying? There's a brilliant book that I read recently called Everybody Lies. I couldn't recommend it highly enough to your listeners. So basically it's about big data. Sounds like it's going to be really boring. It's actually fascinating. It's right, is it right behind you? Everybody lies what the internet can uh, tell us about who we really are. This is perfect. You do this at all the time. This is like a Darren Brown. Oh, yeah, no, you, you, name a, you name a book. I'll just pull it in the back. Mein Kampf. <laughs> oh, no, Will's got a copy. Um, so this book, basically, I don't know if you've spoken about on the podcast before, but this book is basically about big data. And the idea, as you know from reading it, is that, is that uh, you, we all have a confessor. We all have a priest that we talk to, and it's Google. What do people actually type into Google? What are their searches? So if you know someone's Google search history, you know a lot about them. But also if you know their Pornhub history, you know who they are with their pants down. And there's this lovely thing about that book where you get this kind of revelation about what people's sexual peccadilloes are and how they change around the world and they're different. So the top, I think in America, the top five, five of the top 10 searches are incest. It's crazy it's mind-blowing why would that be a thing i mean i guess i don't have a sister so it's never been a thing for me you know the thing about it that i I mean do people really want to spend that much time around their families i don't think so it didn't feel like it was one of those things that we were i agree with you by the way it must take the edge off a family round (laughs)
you know, when they, when they, well, what would the Australian reference be in Tasmania? We had a family route. The makeup sex was incredible. Apologies to the good people of Tasmania. You've, you have a hard enough time as it is. You'll be listening to this with your wife and sister, just one woman, thinking that's out of line. So what do you think? I mean, look, you know, I, I meant to say, I was going to say all jokes aside, but please don't put your jokes aside. I'm enjoying the jokes. Keep them in the conversation. But, you know, alongside the jokes, I ask you this with somewhat of a serious point, considering particularly that you've read this book, you might have some thoughts on this, which is how much do you think that like pornography, like the availability of pornography has had like a, like what is the measurable effect of that on our society? The idiom of sex has changed. The order in which people do things have changed. And I mean, I'm quite interested in that, you know, um, I'm, I'm very sex positive. I mean, I think it's very healthy to talk about and to um, discuss, but the order in which we do things and the things that we do have changed. And partly that's to do with developments in personal hygiene and all the rest of it. Like, it used to be a thing. I was chatting to a buddy of mine who's maybe, he's nearly 60 now. And we were chatting about porn and he was going, he's going, it's amazing that the, you know, in pornography, it's like uh, the, the blowjob is like the first thing that happens. Like, of course, of course that'll be happening. <laughs> it used to be, you would date a woman, you would sleep with her for maybe three or four times. And then as a special treat on the fifth time, that might happen. It used, the blowjob was the, it was the, it was the anal sex of the 60s. It was a, it was a, a new realm of possibility. They used to call it in World War I, I believe it was called the French method. Like, because the GIs that came over and fought in the First World War were getting blown. And then they were going back to America going, I met this girl and she did this thing. Would you do this thing? But it's a surprisingly, I mean, not that we're, I mean, I'm sure that the ancient Greeks and Romans did bloody everything, but it kind of got a bit lost there in the no bathing of the Middle Ages. Yeah, it's back, isn't it? I mean, like now for kids, it's all like, you know, rimming and pegging and that's all just like natural shit that people are doing. And you're like, oh, we would only hear whispers of like these sort of things in our, in our time. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it's, it's all good, but I do think pornography is pushing people uh, in a direction where it's very, you know, sex is very monkey see, monkey do. So you watch it and then you desire that and you think about it and it's, um, it, it's weird. I think the, what feels good and what looks good is is very different. So I think sometimes people are people are almost having sex. Like I mean, I think there's a lot of women that that, that you find find sort of that attractive. A man a man with the top of their head and shoulders kind of cut off. Like, <laughs> because the guy's never in it. There's the weird thing. Where it's, it's often I had an idea for doing POV porn. You know POV oh. porn. It's shot from the yeah. man's perspective. So you see what the guy sees when he's watching having sex with a lady in the, in a pornographic film. I thought I'd do one POV porn, but it's from the woman's perspective. It's going to be easy to shoot as well because it's just a close-up of a headboard and a pillow. Occasionally, some dude's feet. Because actually, men are very visual because we've got such a great view. When we're having sex, we're thinking, what a great ass. And when she's having sex, she's thinking, wouldn't it be nice if he's clipped his toenails once in a while? Are you familiar with the Mormon concept of soaking? I think this might be something that is up your alley a little bit. I was just reading in a news article about this today. And it's very much about the ways that, so in my country town, I'll give you this, some background to this. So in the country town I grew up in, uh, the Catholic girls school, the kind of rumor or like the thing that was said was that if you wanted to keep your virginity, that anal sex meant that you were still a virgin. That still exists in, in many cultures around the world. That's a, that's kind of a, yeah. So 
Okay, so this is a sort of a, a different extension of that principle, basically. And so apparently in Mormon communities, they think they have found a loophole that God should have got his lawyer in when he was coming up with his set of rules because they have a concept called soaking. And what soaking is, is their sort of loophole into, you know, not having sex before marriage. So what I'm the made man- of questions right now. What What is soaking? Okay, so, okay, let me ask you this, Jimmy, first. Before I tell you what soaking is, speculate just for a second on what you think soaking might be just from the name just from the like scenario that i've painted for you do you have any sense of what it might be i mean my mind goes to some kind of squirting type nonsense going on uh like uh to quote alex cameron you know uh like a tsunami uh, that sounds like the kind of affair that's going on. Okay. You're in the right area, but not quite in the right area. So what basically there... Uh... First time a woman said that to me. <laughs> so apparently the loophole is that the man can get hard and put himself inside the woman as long as there is no movement. So basically you insert the penis into the vagina and then you just stay still. So hence soaking, right? This is like this is tantric sex. They've they've right. reverse engineered tantric sex. They just go, well, if we just wait. <laughs> but this is the bit of it that I think you'll be particularly fascinated by. Apparently, the more adventurous will invite then a friend over who bounces on the bed. Because as long as you are not making the motion, so as long as the bed is making the motion. That is fine, as long as you yourself. Oh no, that's that is that's the case. That's okay. If there's any young people out here wondering, that is definitely the case. The guy holding the camcorder can kind of rock the, or sometimes you could do soaking in the park on a, on a seesaw, and there could just be a fat friend on the other end, and the two of you, and you'd be, yeah, perfect. I mean. It does seem like that thing of like when you get into talking about religion, the some of the rules you do think was this just made up by people having some sort of mental health issues in the Middle Ages? Yeah, well, yes, of course it was. Were you ever religious? Have you ever had religion? I was in very. Your life? I was religious until I was about twenty-six, and I I view one of the big life changes that I had. One of the big things that changed in my life was uh, becoming an atheist. I was kind of mid twenties when I lost my faith. I was on a trip to Israel and. It was that that most obvious of things that you you choose not to think about if you're if you're religious. Um, but I, I was in Israel, and suddenly you're confronted by the Muslim and the Jewish faith because it's all sort of together. And you go, "This is a theme park. This is it's only nine hundred years old. It's not two thousand years old. They just rebuilt the thing and went well. It's old enough." And you see the Jewish and the Muslim faith, and you meet these people, and you kind of go, "Well, if I'm right, they're wrong." And the arrogance of that just struck me as kind of ridiculous suddenly. And I went, "Well." I don't, I don't think so. I don't think everyone in India is going to hell because they're Hindus. I think it's, I think this maybe we're all, I only, I only don't believe in one more religion than the Pope. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, and I don't view atheism as, I think sometimes it's presented as people are a bit smug with atheism. They're like, it's a bit finger waggy and cold and austere. And I view it as an incredible uh, uh, rush of blood to the head. It's an incredibly empowering thing because you're suddenly in charge and you're taking charge of your life and, and like you've only got one and that's what makes it special. And kind of everything changed for me around that time. I lost my faith when I was about sort of 25 and started doing comedy and uh, setting out on a new life almost immediately afterwards. And so it's all in my new book before and after. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> I, I do think the things you believe 
are the biggest uh, kind of, we, we, you would imagine in life that rules govern what you do. And they do, but it's the unwritten rules. It's the rules you set for yourself. I'm not the sort of person that does that. And I'm, I can't do that because you set up all this stuff and religion's just a bunch of rules that you suddenly, when you get rid of it, you don't need to obey any of that. You just go off on your own way. Were you all in on it though? Did you find some sort of previous to it? Did you believe in the idea of like sin and heaven and all the things that come with the religion? Yeah, the whole bit. I mean, I kind of feel losing your religion, it's slightly embarrassing afterwards because it feels like you've just seen a close-up magic trick mm. and then someone told you how the trick was done and you feel, you, ah, <laughs> I can't believe I fell for that. That is some hokey bullshit. But I mean, you know, it gives a lot of people tremendous uh, sucker and, and, and great. And I think there's elements of it that I, that I like. And there's elements of it that I think we crave as humans. Like when I look at something like OCD, you know, some people have got really bad OCD. I've got a couple of friends with it. They turn on and off the light switch 15 times. That's the ritual element of religion with no belief structure. So you've just got the ritual. And you see that people, some people really have a need for it. And when they're, when they're kind of rational, they go, well, I'll be OCD. I'll, I'll wash my hands 15 times. And that ritual is something. And if you're a religious person, you don't need that. So you just say the rosary. It gives you a guiding principle. like, And I think that obviously we've got this rise of conspiracy theories and whether it be your QAnon, whether it be anti-vaccine movements. So, well, conspiracy theories, they're a bit like the easiest way to explain it is like when you look at Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, they're strong men, right? That's what their brand is. I'm a strong man. And what they are, is they're a simple solution to a complex problem. Yeah. And that's what conspiracy theories are. They're a simple solution to a complex problem. Now, why did 9-11 happen? It's incredibly complicated, and you have to watch six hours of Adam Curtis documentaries to get to the bottom of it. And it's like, it's, 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 a, it's a mindfuck. And you go, oh, no one's really in control. Everything's just randomly happening, and it's crazy. And then you go, a conspiracy theory, you read a thing, and it just goes, no, no, no these guys are in charge and they're running the whole show and you go, it's so simple. It's comforting. It's a comforting story. So simple solutions to complex problems. It's, it's, it's the reason we have, you know, cancel culture is because the limits of our thought now seem to be the limits of our media. So, you know, we, we take people as good. No one is good or bad. People are multifaceted. They have good elements and bad elements to them. So you, but you, but we go, well, it's one or the other and people are in trenches now on the left and the right, there's no debate, there's nothing in the middle. We have to find a way of kind of, and I think comedy is really interesting because comedy exists in this special place between public and private discourse where we're allowed to go on stage and say the unsayable and speak, you know, truth. And it's, it's kind of, it's very freeing. So, okay, so much to unpack there. Just so much interesting shit. Who would have thought, Jimmy Carr? Nice to have you on the show. So um, what I want to know is like simple solutions to complex problems is something I absolutely dig. Obviously, that is part of what religion offers. You know, do this, follow these rules, you'll go to this paradise. You know, there's always some version of that. You know, do unto other people as they would do unto you. Some of these are very just good guiding principles that are integral to most of these religions as well. Well, the thing about... You know, cancel culture for me is it breaks the golden rule. The golden rule across lots of religions is do unto others as you would have them do to you, right? That's, that's the thing. Do unto you seems a bit weird, but like be nice and then people will be nice to you. Great. Cancel culture is based on a, on a thing that you go, when you're online on Twitter, you go, I've got a perfect track record. I've never fucked up in my life. Everyone fucks up. I love that Jay-Z did an interview where he said, I'm not the worst thing I've ever done. 
And I just think that's there's a brilliance to that where you go, no, it's like everyone messes up and then you, there's redemption and forgiveness in religion. And actually our culture, as advanced as it is, with the cancel culture bit of it, we've got the flagellation, we've got the shunning of religion, but we haven't got the, me- the, the mechanism for bringing people back and going, okay, you come back now. So there's that amazing John Ronson book, which I imagine you've read, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which I couldn't recommend highly enough, which is about how most people that get cancelled aren't famous people off the telly. Most people that get cancelled are just regular folk. It's a bloke running a gardening company or whatever, or a plumber's, and he tweeted something inappropriate when he was drunk when he was 16, and now suddenly he's lost his job and he's off the board. And you go, ah, you know, it's it's a long time ago. Don't worry about it. Okay, so uh, firstly, we should have noted about Jay-Z. He put it on the public record. He had 99 problems. We shouldn't think he's a perfect person. But um, the other thing is, I would say about... And you know that, that song's a cover version. That's <laughs> the thing that blows my mind. I think it's one of the best cover versions of all time. It's my ongoing conversation with musicians, is best cover version of all time. I think maybe Jealous Guy, uh, originally a John Lennon song, but Brian Ferry sung it better. Jay-Z sang, it was Ice T's song, 99 Problems. And Jay-Z covered it. Tainted Love is the other one by Soft Cell, a cover of a Northern Soul classic. I'm going to throw in Hurt by uh, Johnny Cash covering the Nine Inch Nails song. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, I was a big Nine Inch Nails fan, but you're right. That is, it is, the song is, is so much better when Johnny Cash sings it. So, okay. So cancel culture is an interesting topic because I, look, I mean, obviously, you know, we work as comedians and there is an implicit part of that. I knew I knew you. I knew. (laughs) No, and honestly, you put the hours in, I genuinely appreciate it. Thank you. No, no, you've always been here for me. I appreciate that. I think the last time we actually had a conversation might have been on stage hurling insults to each other in Montreal at like a roast battle. So <laughs> that was really fun, though, wasn't it? That was such a great, like that thing of like the comedy festivals. That thing of, uh, I mean, I know there's you know loads of festivals in in Australia. It's it's kind of heartbreaking that they haven't happened. Not so much for us, right? We're right. kind of old dogs now, right? We've had our breaks. We've come up through it. It's the kind of younger guys that I feel bad for. That they, you know, the, the mid-level and the guys just starting out comics are like, ah, oh, not having that outlet. I think there's I think it's gonna be like a roaring twenties now where people go, I'm tired of looking at screens. I'm tired of, you know, get up in the morning, you check your iPhone, you look at the sat nav on the way to work, you look at a computer all day, you get home and you watch Netflix to relax. It's like screen, 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 screen. Going out to a live event and feeling part of a tribe is such an important human thing, not to just promote live comedy shows, but you go, it's such an important human activity to get out there and to experience what it's like to be in a tribe. And you're, you're 30 times more likely to laugh when you see something live in a room than watch it on Netflix. I, even though you know it's funny when you're watching it on Netflix, you go, this is a good show, but you don't laugh out loud because it's a social noise. It's something that's, a laugh is, it's about a million years older than language. It's a different part of the throat that's used. And it originally was developed as like remote grooming. People make laughed in order to indicate I'm not a threat. That's where, that's the heritage of it. And most laughter is just in conversation, just making things okay. Part of that is really interesting to me because one of the things I've always loved about live performance is the idea that you could have two people sitting in your room or like 2,000 people sitting in your room. If they had a conversation in the foyer, wouldn't necessarily have a lot in common. But for that like hour and a half, two hours that you're on stage, they are united by each of these jokes. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Right. It's the idea that they're, I love the idea that, that words are spelt and that somehow when you're writing a joke, it's a magic spell and you can change someone's state. You could, like, I like to think of us as drug dealers. 
we're drug dealers, but the, you know, we travel around the country dealing drugs, but the drugs we deal, it's dopamine and it's already on you. That's the genius yeah. thing, it's why I've never been arrested. <laughs> I can get in and out of Australia without a bother. And, and I can release endorphins, the drugs are on you. And it's like, they can't, I'm also, I'm breaking the golden rule. I'm getting high on my own, own supply. This is crazy. When you're on stage, what is your, I've been thinking a lot about the relationship with the audience since the audience went away, you know, and what is the role of the audience in comedy? Do you have a thought? Well, do you why have don't like, you, I mean, you're in a unique position that you could call both of your fans and just ask direct. Well, I did. I called you and then I'll get on to the other one next. So. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, it's, it's a weird that that relationship with the audience, I, I love that quote, um, laughter is the shortest distance between two people. I think there's a friendship on stage. I think what you're creating is, I think the funniest jokes in the world, the funniest people in the world aren't stand-up comedians that you've heard of. The funniest people in the world are your mates and your family. And the funniest joke in the world is the in-joke that only you and her and that bloke get because you had to be there because it's a special thing. And what we create, I think, in a comedy show is that atmosphere for two hours. So you're on stage and we create this little community that only exists, as you say, all of these people from different backgrounds, different ages, creeds and colours, wonderful, are all together. And the thing we have in common is that sense of humour. And especially at my shows, because I've got a very transgressive sense of humour. So it's that lovely thing where you go, this is the only sense of humour to have. I don't see the point in mild comedy. I don't think comedy's for the good times in life. I, I don't. I genuinely, I think when you're sitting on a beach in, in the Caribbean, uh, sipping a pina colada, you don't need a laugh. You're having a great day. It's all relaxing. Great. When someone's died, when you just get the diagnosis, when your kid's sick, when, when something awful happens in life, that's when you need comedy. That's when it really has like a, uh, it gives you a Darwinian advantage because you can't be frightened and laugh at the same time. It's, it's that wonderful thing where it's, it just, it changes your state and it affects the vagus nerve and everything in your body relaxes. It's just, you're a better person when you're laughing. So seeing the world through a comic size is just a better way to experience it. Okay. So you talked about the nature of being, you know, transgressive because that is the humor that you love is like saying something that people say that you can't say. So like in this world, not just that. I mean, you have like incredibly clever jokes, but like you work in. But I mean, that's that's my my brand is that. I mean, it's a weird thing. I I'm pretty relaxed about cancel culture and the way that the world's going. I think the world's going in the right direction. I think sometimes there's a little bit of an overcorrection. I think there's a there's a a generation of woke people that are saying exactly the right things. I agree with all of it. I think maybe they could say it in a nicer way. I think maybe they could meet someone halfway on things. I think there's a difference between a joke and a statement. I think it's okay to joke about everything. There's, I mean, my jokes, the, the show at the moment is called uh, Terribly Funny. And at the beginning of the show, I do, a, I do like a, a trigger warning. I say, look, tonight's show contains jokes about terrible things, terrible things that may have affected you or the people that you love. But these are just jokes. They're not the terrible things. There's a huge difference between doing a joke about a rape and doing a rape. I mean, it, it, it's obvious but there's something really profound about like pointing out these are these, these are not the transgressions. So I think sometimes when people get annoyed with a joke, it's because it's the low hanging fruit of, well, he shouldn't have joked about that. And you've got to take that seriously. Well, no, you, you have to process it. Jokes are a way of processing things. I remember Joan Rivers, incredible. Like someone gave her a hard time for making a joke about the Holocaust. And it doesn't get any more transgressive than that. You know, the worst thing that's ever happened in human history. And she makes jokes about it. I make jokes about it. And she said, um, well, people say never forget. This is how I remember. 
and it always struck me as a brilliant it's it's a way of processing it and talking about it and keeping it you know keeping it fresh in our minds and i mean you can't be offended by a joke about something that didn't happen in the first place there it is <laughs> finally david irving's <laughs> listening to this going finally well, it is it is bizarre but you know people you know i don't think the transgressive stuff as well is like in life you're going to need a laugh. Like the terrible things are going to happen to you. You're going to go through tough times. And if your sense of humor is intact in that, if you have a dark sense of humor, then I think it's much easier to cope with those times because there's at least a little bit of levity in those moments. So when you write, where, where does it come from? Like, do you set out and think, I want to write a joke about the Holocaust? Or are you setting out with, like, I mean, I mean, this is the classic journalist, um, where do you get your ideas, I suppose. But I hope that you can talk to me about it in a... There's an old, a, there's a, it's actually, a, it's an old man in Perth that yeah. writes it. <laughs> um, it is an interesting thing. I think it's like, initially, it's, uh, I, I do a lot of, a lot of what I do is wordplay. And those jokes are always reverse engineered. So you start with a punchline and you kind of work backwards. And then you're listening out for things that are, I mean, really what comics do very well is pattern recognition. The transferable skill of being a comic is pattern recognition. So we're good at noticing when things don't quite fit or have a double meaning or, you know, so, and that's obviously in humanity, pattern recognition, that's the skill that got us everything that built society. And we're doing that with, with language and, you know, it rewards the reason we laugh as well is it, the Darwinian advantage is it rewards pattern recognition. You're noticing when things aren't quite right and pointing that out. And, and you're also like linguistic communication ability is being rewarded with laughter. So you're encouraged to be better at it. Uh, and, and so I think the, the <clears throat> long winded way of saying all jokes work in the same way, right? It's the sudden revelation of a previously concealed fact. So all jokes are two stories. And in the first story, you make an assumption or you make the audience make an assumption that turns out to be erroneous in the second part of the story, the surprise, the punchline, and then the laugh happens. And it's the same trick every time. You, do, you, you know, there's a million different, it's like saying there's 12 notes. No, there's only 12 notes. I guess we must be done with music. We haven't even scratched the surface. There's so much to do with that, but it, they work in this way. So when you're aware of the structure, you can kind of, I, I sort of write jokes. I know the structure of jokes just, I mean, organically at this stage, it's like unconscious competence. I know what that's like. So you know the structure. And then when you want to write a joke or you hear a phrase, you kind of know where that's going to fit within the structure and you can kind of put it together very quickly. It's almost, the thing I would compare it to that, that everyone sort of does or lots of people do is crossword puzzles. Writing jokes for me is like doing crossword puzzles. I find it very pleasing, very satisfying. It, you know, you get a little dopamine rush when you, when you figure it out. And it sometimes feels like the joke was there the whole time. Like, you know, that famous Da Vinci thing of going, how did you make David? Well, mm-hmm. I just chiseled away everything that wasn't David. Okay, so I'm super interested in this because it pains me to have to say this to you, Jimmy, but you are a master craftsman and you are just incredibly good at what you do. Like, you know, like just... It, 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 I could feel that that was difficult for you to oh, say. So hard. I couldn't even actually get all the words out properly. It was real hard. So, <laughs> But... What I am most impressed by when I look at your work is that it feels like there's a couple of times where for a lot of other comedians, they would have gone, well, this is as good as I can do. Like this is, this show is perfect. Like every joke in it is great. I've clearly toured it a lot. I've recorded it. This is like almost like a a perfect comedy special. And then you go away and without reinventing yourself, 
you just get better at doing what it was that you were already doing as well as anybody was doing it. I, I'm interested in that. It's, it's, it's interesting. I'm going through something at the moment where I'm trying to uh, change it up. I'm, I've been doing comedy like 20 years now and I'm trying to change everything. I'm trying to write longer routines. I mean, this might be boring for the listener. I think this is interesting for two comics to have a chat about, but it's, it's that thing of... It's, we're two comics. People, like, if they, to be honest, Jimmy, like, you know what? Like, people will just listen till the end. It's fine. Don't worry. We can talk about whatever. Oh, well, look, here's, 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 here's the boring. Let's talk shop. Okay, so I'm, I'm a one-liner guy. So I'm all fastballs, all fastballs. If you come and see my show, it's three jokes a minute minimum. And like when people say oh, you're a laugh a minute, you go, oh, if you're a laugh a minute, mm. you're fucking up. You need three laughs a minute and you need to keep them there in that space where they're giddy with laughter and it's all coming and they can't remember the next one because the, ne- the last one because the next one's coming. I'm trying to change up my style a little bit. I'm trying to work slightly, very slightly longer form. Now, my love language is jokes, is one line, is wordplay. So I- I'm trying to build longer stories, longer pieces because I, I kind of analyzed and looked at comedy. I'm a comedy fan before I'm a comedy performer. And all the greats, everyone on Mount Rushmore of comedy is doing routines between seven and 12 minutes long. They're building those routines. And the shows, so when they talk about, when you talk about uh, Jim Jeffries doing gun control, let's say, yeah. or uh, Chris Rock talking about, um, uh, you know, black people versus the N-word, like an absolutely, like a, a game-changing routine, something that's like, it's one of, it's the, it's what you need to look at when you're starting comedy. When you go, the way in which he, they're, they're structuring those routines I'm looking at those and going, that's what I aspire to do. I want to be better. And it feels like every day is a school day. It feels like I'm learning more about comedy. I'm getting better at it. I mean, you're kind of growing up in public, but you, you, you kind of go, well, I'm going to get better at that. I, I still want to deliver for the people that want the, you know, I'm going to be doing edgy one-liners till I die. That's me. But slightly longer form, slightly changing up. And, you know, we'll see how I do. I mean, it's, um, it's so exciting to kind of, having 18 months off, the downside is the downside. It's obvious. The upside is it felt like a half time on life. It felt like we cut up the oranges and, and everyone had a little break and we kind of, you know, someone blew a whistle and we had a little bit of time to think and reflect. Are you enjoying what you're doing? You know, so, you know, on the one hand, you've got a choice, you know, in lockdown, you write a book or you do a podcast. I think I took the dignified option. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I brought you down to my level. <laughs> and then you think about your career. You think about like, well, how do I want to do this better? You know, a lot of the greats as well in our industry are not, young men it's like the the or young women it's the real t- the ten thousand hour thing is so true for comedy it's like no one makes it overnight i mean the one exception is eddie murphy uh he came out fully formed at, at like 18 it's like it's ludicrous but that's a unicorn everyone else had to work for 10 years 15 years before they got their first glimmer of success and it's a really interesting thing of like most of the comics that i really love were in their 40s and 50s it makes a lot of sense to me, to be honest, the 40s and 50s, not just the 10,000 hours getting your craft up, but you're just at a point in your life where you're probably most relatable to the broadest gamut of people. You've been a kid and you can remember being a kid and you are, you know know what it's like to be an older person and how life can change your mind on those things. I think it's a good, interesting place to be a performer. But like you talk about the lockdown changing your perspective on what you like and don't like. Did you... In a meaningful way, do you think when you go back to, you know, what your life was like before, will there be any meaningful changes, things that are there or aren't there that from before? I think the, I mean, the big thing that happened for me was I became a father for the first time two years ago. So it feels like my life is, it feels like I don't believe in, a, in an afterlife, but I believe in a next life. 
And I think that's the analogy. I think that's what they were shooting for with a lot of religions. And then it was taken literally. Like, I think there's a next life. I think things change. You know, you, you go from not having a kid to having a kid. And it's like, okay, everything's different. Your perspective changes a little bit. Thankfully, I just did like a new material night and realized, yeah, it hasn't softened me one fucking bit. <laughs> Thank God for that. But, but you do have that thing of going, well, you know, people change. You're not the person you were 15 years ago. You know, that's the next life. And the, that kind of awakening to that is really interesting to go, okay, we're, we're not nouns, we're verbs. We're doing things and we can do better. Well, now that you're a father, Jimmy, like, because I mean, sorry, how much of you did you find? I don't like the term father. I prefer the term motherfucker. Sorry. Yeah. So, of course, yeah, for future, you know, step porn <laughs> relationships. So, well, my mother, like- that's what a father is. Hey, motherfucker. <laughs> Okay, here's my question though. Like beforehand, did you define who you were mostly through what you do? Like if people had asked you who Jimmy Carr is, like you'd be like, well, I'm like a comedian and I host TV shows and I, you know, this is who Jimmy Carr is? I think there's a slightly a gender divide there as well. I think men are terrible at just saying what they do, not who they are. Uh, Like they're so, and uh, you know, that weird thing of like uh, kind of status being important and their sense of, you know, it's why guys sometimes when they lose their jobs will, I mean, sometimes women very sadly as well but guys when they lose their jobs will jump off the fucking building because they don't know who they are anymore and it's the it's the loss of self it's like the imagine the worst breakup you've ever been through it's twice as bad as that for a, a guy in his 50s to lose his job in finance because he's lost his whole identity he doesn't know who he is anymore well if i'm not that then i don't know who i am and sometimes the trappings of that the the signifiers the watch and the car and the house and the what and the golf club and the whatever become the things that define who they are. Those are the little, the little checklists, the, the totems. And actually, when you, when you break it down, it's, you know, our culture's built on a, on a weird, you know, buying shit we don't need to impress people we don't like. What are the signifiers of success for you in, as a comedian? You begrudgingly saying you're a master craftsman, <laughs> you're very good at what you do. Genuinely, genuinely, that means the world to me. That, like... The, the uh, game recognized game, like other comics that you like going, I oh, know he's pretty good. He's a safe pair of hands. You should go and see him live. That for me is like another comic going, oh, you should go and see that guy live. Is like, that's the apps. That's the shit. That's the coolest thing. And I think that thing of that speaks to, it's slightly a status thing. And it's slightly uh, seeing yourself reflected in other people. I love that quote about comedians, Alan Havy, it's a mate of mine. You, you might know him, he's in Mad Men, but he's a great New York comic who mm-hmm. lives in LA now, great guy. And he said, we're out for ourselves, but in it together. Is that not the best description of comics? Out for ourselves, but in it together. Like we're all doing our own thing. Mm-hmm. No one's taking bread from anyone else's table. If you're, if you're looking at what other people are doing, like I always think that thing is, you know, comparison is the thief of joy. I'm not looking at anyone else's career trying to be jealous. Another comedian's success is my success. Mm-hmm. The industry's getting bigger. Everyone's doing better. It's all good. But that, that weird kind of jealousy that actors sometimes get because, you know, I bet there's a bunch of actors out there at 35 going, well, I could be the next Bond. Often they've sat in a room with 20 other people who look like them going for that role. Like literally the comparison. I, I think I first met you at the Montreal Festival. And you're in the Montreal Festival and you go, this is fine. We're all doing our own thing. I can't do what you do. Can't, couldn't begin to. Because it's like you, you being you is like, and that's your, I write about this a lot in the book about edge. Your edge is your edge. Like, what do you do best? 
And it's not about being better than anyone else in the world. It's just the thing that you do best. What are you best at? And you lean into that. You just do more of that. Is there um, a moment that if you could erase one, you, you get to like erase a, it can be anything to be honest. It doesn't have to be work-related, but I'd like if it was work-related. Is there anything from your back catalogue if you could just rip one page out of that, that or are you just one of those people that everything that I did is me and it's got to me to me to where I am? Well, I think, I think philosophically, I think I would be on the, the rather boring answer, which is it led me to here. And I like where I'm calling from. So it's, it's that weird thing of going, well, yeah, you could take those things away, but I'm, I, I think one of the great superpowers of comedians is we made friends with failure really early on. A lot of people are very scared of failure. I found it terrifying writing a book because you write a book and you go, right, I've got, I don't get feedback now for a year and a half, a year and a bit, right? So you write it and then I'm waiting for you to go, oh, I read it and it's good. Ah, it's a long time to wait. I like the idea of being on stage at a new material night and going, I tell a joke, Laugh, not a laugh, binary. Yes, no, tick, cross, and you're through. I like that feedback loop. I like the idea of going, look, you have to get, I had to fail a thousand times to be a success. That you may know that famous quote by Michael Jordan, where he talks about how many shots he's missed, how many shots in the final thing, how many three-pointers he's lost, how many things he's messed up, how many games he's lost, how many things to be the greatest of all time. And you go, that's the analogy, you know, sports analogy. For comedians, I've written more jokes that don't work than jokes that work, as have you. As have every musician that you love has written more misses than hits. It's, it's extraordinary. But you have to be willing to fail and to put your ass out there and to fail publicly to, to, to do anything. Okay, so I'm interested then in the book writing process. Do you know off the top of your head, by the way, if you were going to do a show, like a, you know, you're taking a show out on tour, do you know how many words that would be? You might be – I know some comedians would not know that, but do you know how many words on a piece of paper? I, I, like, to have, I like to have 300 lines. Mm. I'd have like 300 jokes uh, that I know are going to work. And in order to do that, I need to write 1,500. So then when you write a book – like, you know, I imagine the book's like, what, 70,000 words or something like that? Is that- A little, little bit more than that, maybe, maybe 90. No, okay, so 90,000 words, right? So that is a lot of words. You know, when you sit down to write a project like that, you know, with a person who, you know, is so good at crafting sentences and lines for every word in the same place, like, was writing something that big, like, daunting in any way? Well, it, it was. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a heartbreaking work of staggering genius, though. Yeah. So, <laughs> it, so I mean, was it course. difficult? Was it difficult? Yeah. Is it brilliant? Yeah. So, no, I, I tell you what, I had the weirdest experience, which was, it's really, this is, this is not self-deprecating in any way, but I wrote the book, right? And you deliver it to the publisher and they send notes back and you, like, it was the finished, finished copy, we're done, that is it, signed off. Copy set, great. And then like six weeks later, no, two months later, you get a call from the publisher going, oh, you have to do the audio book. And you go, no, thanks. And they go, no, it's in your contract. You have to. So they sent me into Soho in London and you've got to sit in a sound booth and you've got to read your book to no one. And it's like, you go, this is not good for my mental health. <laughs> and so I'm reading my book and I've kind of, you know, there's some of the bits I wrote months ago. So you've kind of forgotten it and you're reading it back. And I was just thinking, I agree with everything this motherfucker says. This is brilliant. It's the best book I've ever read. This is fantastic. It's like so silly, but such a lovely experience. And then, so the audio book, I got a friend of mine called Amanda Baker who helped me on the book. Like she's a comedy director 
And she's she's really good at kind of going, pushing you on stuff and going, I'm trying to work with her now on like pushing routines. So I don't just get the quick one line and out. I'm like pushing through on what I think about it and, you know, getting more stuff. So she's really good at kind of pushing me. And she like, with a book, like pushing me, no, I need more on that story. No, you have to talk about that, whatever the uncomfortable stuff is. So in the audio book, I got just to sit in the sound booth. And every time I sounded bored or like, eh, she was like, no, no, we're doing that again. It's got to be a performance. So the audio book's like a six hour, like performance of the book. <laughs> it took fucking ages. Uh, I am interested in your ambition. Um, are you a ambitious person? Like it feels like if you viewed your career from the outside, you would, and I'm not offering that as a pejorative in any way, by the way, I'm just asking if you consider yourself to be an ambitious person. Yeah, I think so. I think I'm, I'm very, I mean, I talk about that. Like, I think there is a Mount Rushmore of comedy, right? There is, there's going to be, there's four people carved in stone, a hundred foot high, and we're not on that list no. right now. But the good news is they're, they're erasing a few people from that mountain at the moment, so... <laughs> Yeah, I listen, uh, Bill Cosby's gone. There's, a, there's, there's room. There's room on that place. Um, so it's a weird thing where you go, that's, that for me is like, that's the goal. That, the goal is to be greatest yeah. of all time and talked about in that number. I'm not anywhere close to that, but I love the fact that I'm in that, I'm, I've got a lottery ticket to that. And the lottery ticket is my career. And I'm trying to get better all the time. And I'm going to run out of road and I probably won't make it. But it's lovely to have a true north. It's lovely to have something that you're shooting for uh, that, that feels like it's achievable. It's not beyond the wit of man. The guys that did it were just regular guys. Nothing magical about them. I, don't, I sort of don't believe in that myth of our society of going, oh, that guy was so talented. Like, no. I mean, one of the guys that's the goat that I talk about in the book is, is Richard Pryor, right? One of the greatest comics of all time. And he's, it's a great story. Because he was, it was around the time of Bill Cosby, who ironically turned out to be the really controversial one. So it was around the same time he was coming up after Bill Cosby was the big name. He was coming up and about like five, six years into his career, he was doing great. And he was playing like The Tonight Show. And if you look at the early footage of him, he was just sort of an everyman observational comic, very mild. And he found himself in 1968 in America and there was this huge civil rights movement, Martin Luther King was speaking and, and, and things were changing. And he found himself in Vegas in front of an audience of all white people doing a routine and kill it, doing really well. I just go, what the fuck am I doing here? And he, and he walks off and he's gone for four years. And he reinvents himself in, in, in the black clubs of America. And he comes back. His first album doesn't do that well when he comes back. His second one doesn't do that well. The third one, this end crazy, this end word crazy, uh, which is, but if you haven't heard it, it's phenomenal. And you, you go, and you totally reinvent himself. And it's such a great story for me because it's the good is the enemy of the best. The good is the enemy of the best. The good, the good life he had, the okay, safety, whatever. He, went, he, did, he became something extraordinary. But you, you kind of, you know, took risks, did something exceptional, kind of walked out. I mean, it's... So the risk... The risk thing is interesting, right? Because, like, the, also legendary stories that I'm sure you'd know more about than me, but of him, you know, going up at the comedy store and places like that for often, like, you know, an hour, an hour plus at a time, really often just bombing, like, you know, really trying to work out what it was, like having the courage to just be getting up there going, I'm working towards something, but I don't need the immediate gratification 
you know, that like I don't need to take that easy option on the way to get there. Would you ever would you ever put yourself through something like that? Like really genuinely going up in front of an audience like that? Or would your natural temptation be a couple of minutes in, I've really got to fucking start telling one of my some of some of my one-liners now? Yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting thing. The bravery in that of getting up there and bombing. I've I've seen like you know latterly I've did quite a lot with Dave Chappelle the last couple of years, and mm-hmm. he's got that ability to get up there and just be himself on stage and find the funny in it. And it's the I think it's the confidence that comes with age, really, or, or position, bit of weight. The idea of like he he's earned that position, and I feel like you, you're getting towards that. I feel like I've got a few minutes. I mean. I think the great thing about comedy is it doesn't matter who you are on stage. Like you get the biggest round of applause walking on. The audience will tell you in five minutes. There's that amazing bit in Comedian, the documentary with Jerry Seinfeld, which is kind of the go-to for comedians, where there's that amazing moment where he's got the biggest sitcom in the world. He's the biggest comic in, in the world. And he's trying new stuff. And the audience, at, I think it's the improv. No, Boston Comedy Club in, in, in New York. And he walks on and the audience go nuts they're on their feet they go nuts and then he kind of bombs and he walks off the and that's the greatest of all time and because he wasn't match fit because he wasn't in the game yet and obviously then it's the story of him coming back and recording a special great but it's such an interesting thing to go the audience what they live in the moment they're not interested in who who you are what you've done it's the opposite of like being a celebrity being a celebrity is is uh is bullshit being famous is great being a celebrity is like, you're, you're a celebrity because of who you are. You're famous for what you do. And comics like on stage, it's what you do that matters. And being in that space and like, like allowing themselves to die or whatever, it's slightly a status thing. And then they're, they're leaning into that. But where it gets them is interesting. I like that. It's, it goes to like my philosophy of life, right? We're, we're going to get on to talking about this. We might as well do it now. Hard choices now, easy life later. So... That idea of like Dave Chappelle getting up there and talking for six hours on stage at the comedy store and bombing for four of the hours. Like when you see his special, his last three specials, you go, man, this guy's so good. Cause you're just looking at the result. You're not looking at the gym work. You're not looking at what he had to put into that to get there. And it's, he's got the best line on, on standup of anyone's uh, on bombing on stage. He said, I'm like evil Knievel. I'm paid for the attempt, not the jump. Oh, man. Okay. So I'm very interested in, like, you know, your life in general, but but I'm also conscious of the amount of time we have. So I want to ask you- And we've got as much time as you want. You know that. So um, you talked about the idea of next life versus afterlife. What do you actually think happens when we die? Do you just think that, uh, like, I mean, because obviously at some point in your life, as you explained to me, that you thought there was a whole, you know, you get to go to some- Believed in magic fairies. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you believe now? Uh, when we die, that's it. We're we're gone. We're gone. And I I do like that idea. You know, it's slightly a showbiz thing, but it's also, you know, for friends and family, um, we die twice. You die when you die and you die again the last time someone says your name. So I had a bereavement recently. I had my friend, Sean Locke, who I worked with for 15 years and we made about 250 shows together. and One of the all-time great, uh, like, TV comics. Like, I mean, a good, great comic too, but, like, as a TV... If people don't know Sean's work as a TV comic, like, as a TV comedy panellist, he was one of one of the all-time greats. It's worth having a look at the clips. If you don't know Sean Locke, he was, he was great. So I lost him recently, and it's really... It's a really interesting thing when you go... 
that there's something very nice now about not just the outpouring of grief and people were really touched by his life, but just the idea that you can kind of live on a little bit, that you can, your work kind of, oh, okay. So I don't know how long our stuff remains funny after we go, but it's nice to think in 50 years time, someone might go, this stuff's really funny. So that that is an interesting question though, isn't it? Legacy, because like, you know, you talk about the idea of things, like comedy can sometimes date. You mentioned Eddie Murphy before. Like, you know, Eddie Murphy, yes, absolutely. He's 18, he's 20, he's made two of the great comedy specials of all time. But then he kind of, stops doing stand-up comedy like you know because like you've climbed mount everest you've climbed you know you're already on mount rushmore what do, what do you do with the rest of your life i mean i think i think that's a mistake and i think he probably regrets that in some sense because i i i bet i don't know eddie never met the guy but i bet you he thinks of himself as a stand-up i mean he's an amazing actor he's oscar yeah. nominated should have won that oscar actually it's an incredible performance in it's dream girls isn't it that he was nominated for he's incredible He's a great actor, great comic, great sketch actor, great movie actor, Trading Places, one of the funniest movies of all. I mean, he's, he's brilliant. I bet he thinks of himself as a stand-up. I bet he thinks that's where it all started. That's why I'm, I've always got that. I could always go back to it. And he's, you know, he's one, one of the greats. I bet he wishes he's kept his hand in. And now it's become too big a deal. I mean, Steve Martin did the same thing. Steve Martin's book, actually, don't bother buying my book before and after Jimmy Carr, a life-changing book. Don't bother buying that. <laughs> Buy Steve Martin's book. That's a great book about stand-up comedy. Steve Martin did the same thing. He sort of did it all, was playing arenas, and then kind of gave it up for 30 years. Didn't do it. He's now kind of back on the road. I think his mistake was he was playing arenas, not theatres. And he was going, oh, I can't really hear the audience, and it's kind of, it's terrible, and I mean, the rooms are too big. And you go, you know the agent works for you, right? Book some smaller rooms. Enjoy the gigs. Yeah. You don't need to quit completely. <laughs> you go, if people are playing arenas, you kind of go, yeah, but the, the, the State Theatre in Sydney or the yeah. Hamer Hall in Melbourne. Beautiful hall. Beautiful hall. It's not going to get any better than that. That's the good experience. Yeah. And if someone heckles at the back, you can see them. You know, when you're playing the Rod Laver arena, you kind of go, unless you're playing tennis, what are you thinking? Okay, I'm interested in that like comment. So what do you think the perfect size audience is for you? Like if you, I'm not talking about, because you've played everything from, you know, the biggest rooms to the smallest rooms. Like what is your ideal room? I'd say 1500 is about perfect. Like a nice theater, 1500, maybe two tiers, you know, so they're kind of right in front of you. I think that's kind of perfect. 1500 to 2000 is, is great. Maybe 2,000, yeah. nice little earner. Yeah, if they're stacked. If there's, like you said, if they're two levels, so they're closer to you, you don't want 2,000 having to go straight back. That's, that's Yeah, it's weird, away. actually, the different sizes of rooms. And I can sort of data theatre by how big it is. Like, you go, you know, 1,000-seater, wow. And you go, some, some of those rooms are tiny. Because, like, the theatres in the UK, some of the 1,000-seaters are tiny because the seats are really squished together and it's they're great. And sometimes it's like a conference hall and you go, <laughs> good evening, delegates, and they're miles away. <laughs> it's all too much. The, the aisles are too wide because of the new safety, fire safety. You want an old building. I didn't answer the last question. What happens when I die? Mm. There'll be a BAFTA tribute. That's what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Who will who will speak on your behalf? Do you think? I mean, I mean, who won't? <laughs> it's going to be incredible. Um, no, I think I think there'll be. I think when I die, there'll be a full investigation <laughs> into you generally. Or no? Um, so here are your scenarios. 
you can have the career that you've had, which is this steady progression of, you know, getting better and better at what you do to the point where you're at a stage in your career where you literally just said to me before, which I loved, by the way, and I think it's absolutely appropriate that you look at where you are and you have ambitions to be considered one of all the all-time best at what you do. I, you're already in that conversation, in my opinion, but the fact that you have greater ambitions, I think, is a wonderful thing, and I love it. Like, but Or you can be Eddie Murphy. You're 18 years old. And you, you know, are, are the most popular comedian on the entire planet, but you do two specials and you never do stand up again. Which of those scenarios are you taking? Well, I, I okay. First, I've got a, a theory about this in my book, Before and After. <laughs> I, I've literally, I've written about this. So my, I've got a holistic theory of jealousy, which is because uh, I'm fancy, Will. I'm a fancy guy. So here's, here's my theory. I think jealousy is a very bad thing. I think envy is a very good thing. So jealousy is about seeing what someone else has and you don't want them to have it. You're jealous of them. You don't necessarily want it. You just don't want them to have it. It's like, it's a really negative, ugly emotion. I don't want that in my life. I think it takes away joy and it's, it's uh, compare and despair. Someone's always going to be doing better than you and have more than you. Fine. Envy, I think is a really brilliant thing. I think envy tells you what you want. And if that's not the fundamental question in life, I don't know what is. That's the only thing you need to know. What do you want? I genuinely, I believe wishing wells work, but they work before you think they work. A wishing well doesn't work. The throwing the penny in doesn't work. There's no magic. The magic is thinking what you want. Yeah, the the magic is to yourself, if this was going to work, what is it that you are wishing for? Yeah, If if you know what you want, then you can kind of point yourself in that direction. You can go and get it. A lot of people don't know what they want. So if you're at a wishing well and you ever go, I wish I had a million pounds, you don't know what you want. That's just like a placeholder. I wish I had like, money is like a magic lamp. You have to know what to wish for. Otherwise, all you've got is a fucking lamp. So the envy thing, my holistic approach to envy is if someone, if you look at someone else's career and you go, oh, wow, I'd love to be one of the greatest of all time. No, you have to have their full life. Would I like to be Richard Pryor? No, because I'll only be jealous of someone if I take the whole package. Mm-hmm. So you've got to take the whole package. You've got to grow up in 1950s America as a black man. That is a very hard station. You've got to grow up in a brothel and not really know your father that well. Um, you've got to be uh, a drug addict and have a compulsive personality. You've got to set yourself on fire when freebasing cocaine and run down the street. I, I, like He had a really hard life, and then he got very, very sick at the end uh, with, I think, Parkinson's. So... That's a very tough life. He was a goat. You can't just take the good. You've got to take the whole thing because that's what life is. It's taking the whole thing. I'll stick with me. I'll stick with me. For better, for worse, I'm, you know, I'm all right. Uh, if there comes a time, and I don't believe this will be, but are you all, we've all had this thought at some stage, I imagine. Which, which is, is it the thought, why is he filming this in a sauna? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm entirely comfortable with that. Uh, what I wanted to ask was, what if there comes a time where – that people just are not interested in you anymore. How would you feel about that? I think there's a, there's a dignity to walking away. Mm. There's a real dignity. In, I mean, I'd like to die with my boots on. I'd like to keep on doing stand-up. I don't think the size of the room, I like to think at that stage in life, my ego would be in check. I would be satisfied. I've had a good career, right? So if it all finishes tomorrow, if I get cancelled tomorrow, and let's face it, the joke that ends my career... I've probably already told it. It's on YouTube somewhere. <laughs> That's right. It's it's not your it's not your new bit. Yeah. 
No, no. I'm grandfathered in now. So yeah. if my career ends tomorrow, I've had, a, I've had a great innings, right? I've had a great life in comedy and there will be a next life, right? There'll be something else that I can do. I like to think that, you know, as long as there's no bitterness, but maybe you could just continue and not play rooms that are as big. I feel like stand-up I've got more control over because I'm the, you know, I know people that have been cancelled and still work, you know? Uh, Louis C.K. is still yeah. working, right? He got cancelled. People, He's not on TV anymore. He'll never be in another movie, but he's still working. He played Madison Square Gardens a couple of weeks ago, filmed a new special. You know, he's working and doing fine. He's got his audience. I think people will always come back to see you live because no one ever remembers what you say. They just remember how you make them feel. And if you make people laugh and you connect with that audience, they'll reward that. They'll come back. They'll stand by you. They'll come back and see you again. So I think I will have an audience going forward for live. TV is, listen, that's, that's the icing on the cake, right? That's the cherry on top. You get to be a stand-up comic. And because of that, you get a few breaks. And those breaks lead you into doing TV shows. And it's really fun. But that's a team sport. And you're not the manager of that team. I'm the star player in my team when I do a TV show, but I'm not the manager. I'm not the owner. Someone else is paying my salary and they're deciding whether they want me to play or not. So they're really in control. With stand-up, I'm the owner, manager. Great, I'm in charge of everything. I like the control of that. I like that being my main thing. And TV is a side hustle. Okay, so I'm interested. You, I mean, obviously, we know the life one. You were religious and you are not religious. I get that. But in stand-up, was there something that you believed when you first started doing stand-up that you know now after doing it for as long as you have done it to be completely untrue? Did you have any particular misconceptions about what you were you know, stepping into or, you know, any firm beliefs that you had at the start that you now don't have at all? I, I think at the beginning, I believed in magic a little bit. Mm. At the beginning, like the very, very start, I remember going to see like Eddie Izzard do two hours on stage and thinking the guy's just superhuman. I remember chatting to a guy that knew Eddie really well. I said, God, it's an incredible show. We went to see it together and we were like falling about. And I was going, it's just incredible. I could never do that. And he went, yeah, well, Eddie just vibrates at a different speed. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, wow, yeah, no, maybe he just vibrates at a different speed. And I remember, like, years later just going, nah. <laughs> that is some bullshit right there. But what Eddie has done is he's written a brilliant show and just performed yeah. the arse out of it. That's what's happened. So the magic, the attaching a special, oh, my God, he's here. And some people with that reputation, I mean, I get very starstruck by comics that I love. I mean, I, you know, I know Chris Rock a little bit now, but Chris Rock for me is the, the greatest guy working. He's the, you know, technically the best comic. Like if you look at the routines, the way they're structured, the cadence of his speech, the, uh, it's almost like a preacher, the way that he restates things, the rhythm. He's always in that kind of pocket of the rhythm and the way that he delivers a punchline. But also more than that, it's the setups. It's the idea. He, he starts out with these incredible premises that the whole audience go, no, you can't say that. And then he works it round. It's, it's a, he's a proper genius, but I don't think he's a genius. I don't think he was born with this incredible thing. I think he's just like, oh, he's worked at it. He knows what work is. He's got the ethic. He goes out there, he finds it. Apparently, his most famous routine, which I think is my famous routine, my favorite, the black people versus the end people routine, which is a, a classic of modern comedy. It's like a brilliant, brilliant piece, about 12 minutes long, and it's genius. Uh, that died for six months. He couldn't get it to work for six months, but he knew there was something there. And you talk about that bravery of standing there and, 
and yeah, that's why I aspire to. But it's it's tough. Yeah, I mean, there's a legend. There's legendary stories about him trying new material by just reading it off a piece of paper, literally in a monotone voice. Because oh, that's how I that's how I test jokes. I yeah, but that's your act, Jimmy. Let's not be. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, but him in particular, he's adding that like Chris Rock to it, you know, like, I mean, he could make anything work. It's also yeah. like taking down the thing, because I think a lot of young people when they're starting out, it's we only see results, right? Because our, our whole, like, you're going to be judged on results. We might as well be honest about it. Whatever industry you're in, especially if you're trying to do something creative, you're up against, like, our memory is too good as a society. So you're up against the greatest of all time. If you're an artist now and you're trying to do something in visual arts, you're up against Leonardo da Vinci. He, like, he's the direct comparison and Warhol and Banksy and anyone else you care to mention. They're all there and freely available and you can get the image on your iPhone. What have you got? It's like a bit daunting. And now with like, you've got all the comedy specials in the world. So I think maybe we have an advantage as comedians because there's a live experience that, well, I'm here right now. And it's, watching something back is not the same as being there, being in the room. That's the, I mean, I'm really looking forward to sort of touring, touring. I'm touring again in the UK, but touring the world will be a thing. Are, are, are places open in Australia? Are you are you in theatres? Uh, so Sydney, where so I'm in Sydney, so we're in lockdown at the moment and have been for three months. Melbourne's been in lockdown. I've cancelled more shows this year than I have done. I got to the point where I stopped putting them on sale because it was just so sad to take them <laughs> off sale again after you'd rescheduled them three times. But the hope is, because our vaccination's going pretty well now, so the hope is that next year we might get a bit of a run at it, I think. Like, you know, I think we might be back properly next year. I'm excited about it. You you won't believe, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've done some shows, but like the reaction now when you come on, I've been to see a couple of things in the West End, like theatre shows yeah. or whatever, because I'm trying to just go out to support theatre. So you go out and you buy tickets and stuff. The reaction now is like twice what it was. Like they, they're just the, the 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 cheer at the end, the cheer when you come on, like we're out, we've done it, we made it. It feels like the victory is at the start line, not the finish line. Um, two more questions, mate, and then we're done. Thank you for doing this, by the way. It's been really, really fun and it's been no, very it's a, nice. You know what? It's, it's great to help someone out that's, you know. Yeah, and no, I appreciate that, mate. Thank you. This is your, <laughs> I mean, it's community <laughs> service. <laughs> like it was court mandated, but I took advantage of the time regardless, you know. Um, hey, uh, two standard questions that I ask on the show, both of them pretty generic, to be honest, mate, but these are the standard ones that come with it. So on my, you might not even have an answer for this because, but I like to ask the question regardless on my desk, I have as close to, I guess, um, as I have to one of those, you know, hanging in there, cat posters, you know, motivational phrases. It just says on this piece of uh, metal here, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? So for me, I just always, that's just to remind me with my work and stuff to not, re as you were talking about before, to, to, to think of like, what is it that I want to do rather than what is it that people want to see from me or whatever, you know, think about if this was going to be successful, what would you want it to look like? What is it? What form does it take? So, but you can interpret it in any way that you would like to interpret it. What would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? I think I would, I think I would maybe try a sitcom. I always think that's like the, like in my, my area of the world in comedy, like the sitcom is, it's such a beautiful form. And I find them so cathartic to watch that, that like it's, it's just, it's half an hour in good company and it's funny and light. And I rewatch Seinfeld most years, mm -hmm. uh, you know, obsessed by Gary Shandling and everything that he did. And 
you know, if I knew I could write, you know, 30 rock, I would be, I'd be doing that. I think it's a, it's a very slightly different skill set. I think it's doable, but I think it's 10,000 hours and it's a whole new set of skills. And I don't think it's my gift. And although I think like, if I knew I couldn't fail, I would do it, but I think I can fail at that. And I think my kind of philosophy of life is to lean into what you're good at and to be grateful for your gifts and I'm slightly jealous of those people. I'm jealous of people that can act brilliantly and be in movies and all that. Who doesn't want to be Will Farrell? But I'm not. I'm the stand-up and I love it. And you've got to kind of remind yourself sometimes, that's okay. It's pretty good. Uh, by the way, we should mention you have a book. We haven't mentioned it so far. You have a book, I believe, that you've written. Is that right? I got – not just our book. I mean, it's the book. It's tremendous. It's Jimmy Carr, a life-changing book. It's basically this conversation, but drawn out. You've got most of it, I'd say, from this. Uh, you'll be absolutely fine. Dear listener, you might want to buy it, but only to, only to show off to other people. Um, it's like half biography, half whatever self-help. It's, it's, uh, I'm pleased with it. It's, you know what the book is? Here's the sales pitch. It's like Eckhart Tolle. It's like if Eckhart Tolle was good at dick jokes. Um, so, okay. I have a time machine. I can take you forward in time, backward in time. Um, it's a round trip. Uh, you don't have to do anything for the sake of humanity. So, like, you don't have to go back. Oh, 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 well, well, I'll stop you there, mate. I wouldn't. <laughs> We've met, right? We've met. I'm not. I that mean, guy. the thing that I would say is, you can go back and kill baby Hitler, but only if you have a particular passion for killing baby Hitler. Like, you don't need to do it on behalf of the the world. I think people with that fantasy, it's going to be so difficult to explain why you're strangling a baby. Yeah, it's tough. It's gonna. That is gonna be a. Re- oh, what are you doing? Oh, I tell you what. No, you'll you'll thank yeah. me. Never. I'm from the future. <laughs> okay. So, would you go forward or backward in time if you're offered a trip on a time machine for a start? I'm a great admirer of a guy called Steven Pinker who wrote a book called Enlightenment Now, which I imagine you'll reach for. It's behind you. I couldn't recommend it highly enough, especially when the news is really bad. You know. You know Trump and COVID and Brexit and you know you, you read all these. Uh, you know, the, the, a pending war in the China Sea. You read all these terrible things. And then Stephen Pinker makes this brilliant argument in Enlightenment Now that everything is better than it's ever been. So if you read the news the last couple of years, you would, you would read about violence against women and you would read about racism and you would read about uh, people not taking vaccines and you would think the world is in a dreadful state. It is, but it's better than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. Forward is the only way. Everything's getting better. There's a march towards more freedom and um, more happiness in the world. And it's sometimes difficult to see that because we only see the problems. You know, uh, I think about a third of the world don't have fresh water, but two thirds do. And it used to be no thirds. You know, in the Middle Ages, everyone drank beer and wine because you had to have stuff that was distilled in some way because otherwise you would get sick. Weird to think, but everyone drank beer in the Middle Ages. People were hammered for 400 fucking years. Weird. But the the idea that everything in society is getting better. You know, if you look at Black Lives Matter, it's an incredible movement, but it's a movement. If you look at the women's movement, it's a movement. It's not something that happened or happens. It's, it's It's a very, very long road. And everything we care about, we had to march for. Everything we care about, like socially, we had to march for those things. Things we take for granted now. Things like, you know, gay rights and, and women's you know, suffrage, all of those things. People have to go and placards in the street. Power doesn't give away power. It has to be taken from them. 
And we're marching in the right direction as a society. Everything's getting better. I'd love to go 50, 100 years into the future and see where we end up. But I think it's, I think it's going to be good. I think we're moving in the right direction. But it's, you know, it's often there's like, you can just get yourself a bit down looking at the state of the world. But I think it's going to be all right. If you went into the future, what would you do? Like, I mean, is there anything specifically that you would want to see? Do you want to see your child growing up? Do you want to, like, see how you hold up? Would you Google? I don't want to be that guy, but I have a section <laughs> in my book where I, t- I literally, it's a great question because I talk about this, right? Yeah. I said there is a time machine. There is such a thing as a time machine, right? Um, time travel is possible, but only in this direction at this speed. So I'm going to go into the future. I'm doing it, right? I'm yeah. doing it. And I can give myself gifts in the future. I'm going to meet myself when I'm 70 and I can, I can be rich if I save and I can be fit if I take care of myself now. Mm. And I can be, you know, thin if I, if I don't eat too much now, don't eat junk food. It's like hard choices now, easy life later. That philosophy of going, you're going to meet yourself in five years time. Take give yourself, do yourself a favor. If you could travel from now and meet yourself age 80, what are you going to do? You, you know, kind of, it's that thing is boring. It's like, yeah, well, I would set up a little savings account because I like to take care of myself when I'm 80. Or I would, I would, uh, I'd make sure I go to the gym every day because I or stretch, stretch more than the gym because I want to be, you know, mobile. I want to be able to do stuff. Like there is a time machine and we're living in it. Jimmy, this has been a pleasure, mate. Thank you so much for joining the show. Ah, it's great, man. Thank you so much. 